part of what you need to do is say the thing that needs to be said. But the more important thing is to say the thing that needs to be said in a way that your counterpart can hear Mm. and in a way that will inspire that person to act. That's how you know you've succeeded in solving this particular situation. And so our recommendation is to be outcomes oriented. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everybody. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline Education. I am here with my teammate, Matt Gladney, and we're back to chat about microaggressions. And we're doing this as part of our series, How Do I Tell You?, Mac, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. I'm so glad to be here, everybody. It's Max, Senior Customer Success Manager with Breakline. As Bethany mentioned, this is part of a series of conversations we've been having around how do I tell you? Um, and it's really just Breakline taking a stab at helping people navigate through these really sensitive situations, that things that come up in the workplace. So today we're going to focus in on microaggressions. Bethany, why don't we go ahead and start with you? Because I know you've always hated this term. Mac, I hate this term. And in fact, on our podcast, I interviewed a fantastic leader. Her name is Alicia Thomas. She's at Medallia. And we actually unpacked our mutual discomfort with this term. And mine is the root of mine is when we say microaggression, we often really mean something like insult, slight, put down, offense, an action that lands and it stings enough so that we notice it, it hurts, it bothers us. So I don't like repackaging something like that as anything to do with micro. Doing so minimizes the impact of the event in my mind. And it also suggests that there might not be that much to learn from. The very definition of micro is extremely small. And let's be honest, lots of extremely small irritants happen to us every single day. And I'm all about ignoring those and saving my focus and my energy for the meaningful things. And that's what our conversation today will focus on, the meaningful things. But let's use the full gift and breadth of our language and refer to them by what we really mean, which again is often insult, slight, put down, offense, an action that lands and stings enough that we notice it. I'd also like to note Breakline's perspective in general, that the level of responsibility we each hold for addressing an insult or an offensive remark, that rises along with your positional authority, your safety, and your stature within the organization. If you are the most senior and the safest person in the organization, the call to action should come first to your desk. 
Absolutely. And let's kick off by actually reviewing a framework that we shared in our first conversation around conditional support. Before you decide whether you're going to engage in a conversation, the first step that we offer is to run that self-assessment, TREADS. So T stands for time, right? Is this the right time to engage? R is the risk. Is the risk or the reward balance right for you? The E is energy. Is this how you choose to spend your energy in this moment? D is desire. Do you want to have this conversation? And S is, do you feel safe enough to have this conversation under the circumstances? I think this is a great time for us to kind of share some personal examples of insults or put downs or offensive moments. I have one that comes to mind right off the bat. I had a colleague of mine who, I mean, was a wonderful person, absolutely sweet, kind-hearted, empathetic. I mean, a complete doll. And had the best of intentions, I think. But we were actually in a group setting. A friend of mine at work had come in and she had her hair done completely different, right? Something that was brand new and and you could tell she was feeling good. She had a new outfit on. And the other friend went to give her a compliment because she was, as all of us, right, noticing how awesome this was, that she was coming in with a fresh look and actually said that she looked exotic. Nobody in the moment, right, made a big deal out of it. Nobody in the moment gasped. But later on, on our way to lunch, I just kind of took her to the side as we got in the car. And I was like, listen, I know you care, right? Mm -hmm. I, I know that you're not saying anything to be hurtful. You're not a mean person. But I want you to know, in case you're not aware, that saying someone looks exotic, that's not usually a term that you want to use on people right? Animals are exotic. Places are exotic. And you really just wanted to highlight that she was, you know, coming in with a different, fresh look that you thought was beautiful. And Mm -hmm. and let's say that instead of trying to minimize it with that word, right? Mm -hmm. So I really came into it assuming the most positive intent about her, Mm -hmm. knowing Mm -hmm. that she was a good person. And then I also tried to lead the conversation by affirming that to her, right? To make it easy for her to hear what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. And there's so many elements of the approach that you took that are really strategic in terms of actually framing the conversation in a way, not just that you could say what needed to be said, but you framed it so that she could hear and act on what you said. And I think that's so important. We'll get into exactly what those pieces were later. I have a personal one too. And I think what's interesting here, Mac, is the example that you shared was an example that wasn't directed at you personally. You were an upstander in that example. This example was one that was actually directed at me. And I think we want to be able to provide a toolkit around both of those circumstances where you might be in the room at the table when something happens, or you might be the target of something. And we want you to feel equipped no matter what the circumstances. My experience was I had just graduated from college and I was getting started in New York City. I think I was 22 or 23 at the time. And Mac, I had no idea how to get a job. I didn't have a professional network. My parents weren't in business. I had no idea what to do. And so I went to a temp agency and they placed me with an e-commerce company at the time. This was 1999 or something. So right where, you know, the first sort of boom of the internet. And I showed up at this firm and I was so excited just to be able to get a paycheck. And I got there early and I was spending my time, those early moments reading the New York Times. 
And my boss for what might've just been that day came in and before he even introduced himself to me, he looked at me, saw what I was reading and said to his sidekick, ah, she's reading the New York times. She thinks she's smart. And I agree with you, Mac. Like, I don't think that this was a terrible person. I think it was, you know, he just kind of had a clumsy way of making a joke, but it landed. And I was, I was like all eager beavers, so excited to be there. And then just really deflated in that moment. Like, man, I, these may not be my people. I don't, I certainly don't feel safe or or respected in this moment. I think that also calls out how, when you're already feeling like you don't quite have your bearings and you don't quite know if you're should I be here? What capacity do I show up as? Those little moments, those little put downs, they become so big. They become, you know, the totality of your experience in that moment. And when you're trying to figure out if this is a safe place for you, that doesn't make you feel that right. Or it might Mm -hmm. even call on things about yourself that you're already feeling right. Like, yes, he doesn't know you. He doesn't know if maybe that's something you struggle with already. And to hear that how triggering that could be. Well, he didn't know me, but you know me and you know that the root of my imposter syndrome, when I feel it, the root of that is I'm not smart enough. And so without knowing me, he hit pretty hard at a soft spot. You know, one of my sort of raw pieces of my heart where I really, when I'm feeling insecure, it's rooted there. And so you're absolutely right. It was a clumsy way to begin what could have been a relationship with me and left a lasting mark. That was 20-ish years ago. I still remember it. Wow. And I wonder if he even remembers that moment, right? Mm Because usually in those moments too, it's so hard to remember what you've done to someone else when it seems so innocuous, but for the other person, Mm -hmm. it's really uh, lasting an imprint. This -hmm. also makes me think of when a coworker of ours shared that based on her appearance, people tell her all the time that, oh, you don't look Mexican or you don't look Latina, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As if that she has to present in some way in order to be able to relate to her heritage and relate to her culture and her DNA, who she is, right? And it could seem so small. But that's such mm-hmm. a hurtful thing when you hold that so close to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. A related story from another colleague, a colleague who grew up in Puerto Rico. And he said when at times when he divulges that to people who don't know him repeatedly, he's heard the reaction, wow, but your English is so good. And then he also had sort of a related episode when he was in Puerto Rico And a shopkeeper in Puerto Rico kept speaking to him in English because she assumed that he couldn't speak Spanish based on his appearance. So that sort of divorcing that you're talking about, Mac, of someone else divorcing you from your identity without even really knowing who you are. Yeah, yeah. And I think that makes me think of another scenario that someone shared Mm -hmm. with us where someone's making an assumption about who your background is and that shaping who you are. She was talking about getting praise from one of her professors who she had really felt like was one of her favorite, closest to really a mentor that she looked up to. And he had given her some praise along with the caveat of for someone of your background. Mm -hmm. And, And how hurtful that is. And we here at Breakline, we love to note the distance from the starting line, how far mm-hmm. someone has to come, right, to get to where they are. But we have to be careful when you acknowledge that for someone and, and in a way that makes it seem like it's impossible that they could be here or right. that it's a shock that they're in the same caliber of presence as you that can really stick with someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it makes me think of a final example, Mac, and that's with one of our veterans on our team. 
And when we were going to our team saying, hey, tell us about the moments where you felt targeted, you know, the moments that stung, the comments that that stung and really stuck with you. He offered a comment. He was a, an explosive ordnance disposal officer in the army. And he offered a comment. He said, you know, repeatedly as he was transitioning out of the army into his post-military life and fielding the question, have you ever killed anyone? And he described it as so deeply uncomfortable and so awkward and, and an example of him feeling very othered by folks that he might not have any connection whatsoever with. Yeah. And that's one of those questions that it really brings up for me. There's so much more weight that they put on their fascination. The fascination around the question trumps the fact that you feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. The fact that Mm -hmm. he might not feel comfortable answering that kind of question isn't even a thought in their mind. The curiosity around, ooh, I wonder, becomes Mm -hmm. bigger than that. And we we lose sight of who that person is. And and honestly, if you really think about it, that's a question that's tied to a lot of trauma, right? Like if the answer is yes, what does that mean? If the answer is Mm -hmm. no, what are you implying, right? It's such a heavy thing to unpack. And I'm sure that was, that's a thing that I've seen and heard thrown around, you know, as water cooler talk, you know, you're just on the way to fill your coffee up for the morning. And now Mm -hmm. imagine the things that are playing through your mind if something like that gets asked. So I, wow, go ahead. Well, I think your, your statement is so powerful. Their fascination trumps the fact that you're uncomfortable. And I, I would consider that an additional layer to the way that an offensive remark can land, because the first layer is the remark itself. And the second layer can be, man, that really hurt. But what matters more to you is that you get a laugh out of it. I'm really glad that we have an opportunity here, Mac, to shine a light on that, that there are actually multiple levels of discomfort and pain that we can inflict on another person when we use language in a way that's clumsy, uncomfortable, or unkind. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think you're right. And it also gets gives us a chance to kind of talk about how do we react, right? What do we yeah. lose when moments like this come up? Mm-hmm. Um, I think back to that colleague, right? When that professor that she trusted crossed the line, her response was that she froze, right? And then just kept replaying in her mind later on all of the things that she should have said. And I just thought... Yeah so relatable, right? How how often mm-hmm. have you walked away from a conversation? And then after it, hours later, you're like, oh, I could have said this. I should have stood up for myself. The guilt, the shame that becomes attached yeah. to someone else's mistake, right? right? That happened to you. And that that means the pain does not start and end with the moment as it's happening. Like mm. it continues in that cycle. And I think we all need to recognize that when we make a mistake like this, the impact can be longer lasting than than we might assume. Yes, absolutely. Another way that we choose to react is through comedy. A lot of us mm-hmm. like to be able to kind of laugh it off, to ease the tension for the other people in the room as well as ourselves. Yeah. I've always believed that trauma builds some of the best comedy routines. It makes me think back to when you were talking about the coworker who shared his story around, have you ever killed anybody? He kind of laughed yeah. it off. He had a little joke. He would always say because he was a bomb tech, like, well, if I did, I'm pretty much doing my job wrong (laughs) and giving them a chance to laugh the moment away um, didn't mean that it didn't still hurt or that it it didn't still affect him. Right. I identified with our teammate who said she froze. I've frozen many times having a sense of humor or like reaching for a sense of humor about it is probably my go-to 
when I'm the target of a comment like this. And I've sort of dissected it in my head sometimes too. I would rather present as if I'm in on the joke rather than the object of the joke. And I think that there's probably something more behind that. Like, I think as human beings, we're social animals, you know, and we want to be part of the pack. We want to be part of the group. We want to be part of the tribe. And when we're othered this way, when we're called out this way, it's an isolating event. And so one way to react to that is be like, oh, no, no, I'm in on the joke, even though you might be crying on the inside. That's right. That's right. That's exactly Mm -hmm. what's happening. Sometimes you want to lean into it too, right? You want to feel like you've got some power in that moment. Sometimes that's, yeah. I know I'm a, the same way and I tend to try to make a joke and it leaves you not feeling, like you said, so much in, in the lack of control, but also mm-hmm. it doesn't diminish the fact that that stung and, oh yeah. man, I still have to deal with those feelings later, right? That also brings about another thing that that someone else was talking to us about, which is that like, it can just be tiring. Sometimes you just want to do your job and roll out. <laughs> you know? Right. right. You're, not, yeah. you're not trying to get into the weeds and have really yeah. emotional conversations and pack through things. I mean, people come to work to work. It can very much be tiring when you're having to constantly almost feels like defend yourself. In, in yeah. Feels right. Because you don't feel safe. Yeah. And I think this might be one of the most important reasons for people leaders to lean in to engaging on this issue is because it is so de-energizing. We siphon off energy. We siphon off confidence. We siphon off that sense of connection when we allow someone to feel attacked. And that statement, if it can be tiring, That means I have less energy to do my job. Mm -hmm. And we want folks, the primary reason why we all come together as a group is to achieve this collective goal, to achieve a collective mission. And if we're using major fractions of the energy that we have to just cycle on stuff and, and feel bad about something, man, what a wasted opportunity on top of everything else. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's some other feelings that I want to unpack when we have spoken with folks who have experienced the insult, the remark, the mistake. And another feeling that we've found over and over again as part of a pattern is a feeling of being tier two in your organization or in your community, mattering just a little bit less than the important people. And our veterans gave us a good example of this. There's a term in the military that says just a person other than a grunt. And that means any person, our veteran on our team who's coming from the army, he said, you know, if you weren't in the infantry or combat in arms, you were a person other than a grunt and you knew it. And you knew that you were tier two in some capacity in some people's eyes. Another example of this that another veteran on our team mentioned was that he was once called a chair force asshole, you know, and obviously we dealt with that head on and we can share more about that later, but that was an, a much harder hitting example of communicating you're tier two, you're not tier one because of the nature of the work that you do. I wanted to call out again, Mac, the whole idea of for our veterans, also the feeling that they have entertainment value. And maybe sometimes the entertainment value is preferenced over the skill set that they're bringing to the table, the experience that they're bringing to the table, the problem-solving ability, the leadership ability. And you talked about it as water cooler conversation and having heard it in those circles. And 
our veterans definitely feel this over and over and over again, even in interviews being asked some form of like, Hey, let's, you know, let's talk about like your hero stories, your combat stories. And they're there to get a sales job that feels irrelevant, but they also feel like maybe I need to play along in order to achieve my goal of getting a job. And then I think this is a thread that runs through a lot of these sentiments, but just the general feeling of being othered and of mattering less than those around you, that tends to also be a really common sentiment when you are on the receiving end of an insulting remark. Yes. And I think there was a running thread that a lot of them shared where they felt Mm -hmm. like it invalidated their own experience, right? If they hadn't been, if they weren't one of those who were inside of that group, then Mm -hmm. like you said, that less than, that feeling of like, well, the time that I served didn't mean anything, right? Yeah. And I think that that's not the intention that most folks have, right? Like you said, it's the curiosity. But I think that we're asking ourselves to get collectively more present and realizing Mm -hmm. what we're saying and realizing the impact that that has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then what can we do? I think at a high level, it's good that we can call back to what we advised during the conditional support conversation, which is to be specific, right? That joke you told about my outfit during Monday's meeting, it hurt my feelings rather than I'm always the target of your jokes. Be concise. Get to the point within that first 15 seconds. Yeah. Also, remember to share your second order feelings, right? If the situation directly involved you, stick with those I statements. I felt hurt. I felt confused or taken aback or targeted. And avoid using those labels for your counterpart that often start with the you statements, right? You're such a jerk or a clown or an asshole or you always, you never avoid those things. You know, I think there are two more recommendations that Breakline would convey. And that's, To be outcomes oriented, Mac, you and I talk all the time about how part of what you need to do is say the thing that needs to be said, but the more important thing is to say the thing that needs to be said in a way that your counterpart can hear Mm. and in a way that will inspire that person to act. That's how you know you've succeeded in solving this particular situation. And so our recommendation is to be outcomes oriented. What do you actually want? What is your clear goal coming out of this conversation? Ask for that in clear terms. You did that with your colleague who referred to another colleague as exotic. You knew you wanted her to never use that term again, you know, because of the way that it landed on your colleague and you succeeded in being outcomes oriented. Those folks had a conversation. She was able to apologize for it. And you never heard that word come out of her mouth again, which was a gift to her and a gift to everyone around her, too. Well, it, it leans into what you always say, which is that, like, when you love someone and you care about them, you don't want to yes. walk around with the spinach in their teeth. Nope you know, make it nope. a fool themselves. We care about Never let you do that. Oh yeah. I will not let you walk out that door with poppy seeds all over your teeth. I'm <laughs> not going to let you do that. I care so much about you that I'm going to tell you straight to your face. That's related to the, the final recommendation I think we have here, which is show grace, show mm-hmm. grace. Temperatures are running so hot in this country right now. Mm-hmm. So many of our leading figures think that their job involves stoking drama but this is real life. And we all need to do our part in turning down the heat and turn up the grace while delivering critical information that our colleagues, our teammates need to know. 
And again, we want to say what needs to be said, but say it in a way that the receiver can hear and internalize. That's the true goal. That's what you accomplished with your colleague in the exotic comment. Another time I I heard about this was, Mac, you know, one of my heroes is Professor Loretta Ross. She's a professor at Smith College. She's the thought leader behind the call-in movement that was really her brainchild. And she shared a story of calling on a student in her class. And she used the wrong pronoun with that student. And Loretta describes freezing, that reaction that we had talked about earlier. She was expecting anger. She was expecting vindictiveness. And instead, the student responded, oh, don't worry. I use the wrong pronouns myself sometimes. And, you know, here, this is a, like a 19 year old showing us the way, showing grace, having an opportunity to explode. And instead of using it as a moment to draw closer. So we also, we want you to have multiple options in your back pocket for how to engage should you decide to do so. So again, Mac ran through the TREADS framework. Let's assume that you've run through that self-assessment. You decide that you want to you want to approach a colleague about something that happened. And so here are a couple of methods that we have successfully employed throughout our own careers. And what I'd say at the outset, these first two options, we would use these in relatively high trust environments. And not every organization is high trust. So note that distinction. But if you are in a relatively high trust environment, the first thing that we would recommend that you do is decide whether this is a public or private conversation. And so let's say you decide that you're going to address it in real time or near real time in public, whether that's in person or over remote collaboration platforms like Slack or Zoom. This is best when whatever happened was also public, lots of people saw it or heard it. And when the person who said or shared it has high status and low risk. That type of person and that type of event, we would recommend, you know, deal with that in public. And the particular approach that we recommend here is stay low drama, go in with a surgical strike, like what Max said, you know, we're we're not going to use words like always or never. We're not going to use absolutes like that. We're talking about this specific moment. We're going to keep our our commentary focused on the surgical strike. And then move on after the point has been acknowledged. This person made a mistake and took ownership for it. Let's get back to work. So low drama, surgical strike, move on. If you decide that you want to address it in real time or near real time in private, whether that's in person or over remote collaboration platforms like Slack or Zoom, this is in private. We think is best when the person who said or shared the comment is perhaps lower status and higher risk. One of my mentors always says public praise, private candor. And I think of his words in moments like this. And again, I tend to use the same approach, which is low drama, surgical strike. But I also spend more time reinforcing that I believe in those people, that I reached out because I care. And again, Mac, to your point, I'm not going to let them walk around with spinach in their teeth because I care. And then we move on. 
Absolutely. And once you go through that kind of assessment, right, then you really need to choose that primary approach, right? The one you just talked about, solving it with sincerity, understanding, using the data and the personal anecdotes and the relationship that you've built, all the knowledge about that person or that relationship so that you can navigate it with a clear mind, right? This is the sober way to kind of navigate that conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also the opportunity we touched on a little bit before, which is to solve it with humor, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it really is just an honest slip up and it's best to just laugh it off with a pointed joke, but something that still kind of addresses it, right? Yeah. Knock it off. You know, you know, you were supposed to be referring to women and not a girl, right? Something Mm -hmm. to that effect, something to make it so that it's not such a heavy moment filled with shame, but also that you can address it. Solve it with love and affection, right? I, I care about you. And there's zero chance I'm about to let you walk out of that door with a smudge of lipstick on your tooth or mm-hmm. shovel to the left. And so just be direct and, and let you know that this is not okay. Mm-hmm. And solve with that clarifying question. You know, did you mean to say woman? And I mm-hmm. think you meant, you know, like give, give to your point, give grace, give mm-hmm. room for somebody to be able to realize that they made a mistake and to own that. In lower trust environments, though, it might be best to take a different approach. And we recognize that, right? So sometimes it's to solve it in the immediate term with a distraction, right? They're going awkward in a meeting and it's best if we loop back to this tomorrow or "Ah, looks like we're running out of time, right? Give yourself a chance to create some distance from the moment so that you can then choose how you want to attack it, right? Mm -hmm. You might choose not to address it at all. And I think that that's something that we don't hear enough of, but there are many reasons why in a low trust environment, your best option might be to just ignore it, right? I mean, it's important to remember that we've all got priorities. We all have needs in life. And sometimes your priorities or needs are for that paycheck, right? And that might outweigh everything else. And that's actually a valid decision too. You're Mm -hmm. safe. Uh, Your security matters and you don't need to take up every single fight, right? Especially when you know it could jeopardize your present or your future in in a real meaningful way. So Mackin, can I, can I interject there? Cause I think it reminds me that you also might have a relatively high trust environment, but it might be a relatively low trust moment in that environment. And that's still okay to choose and say, you know what, I'm not going to take this on right now. I'm just kind of thinking like, you know, you're a week away from a critical performance conversation or promotion or raise that might not be the time when you feel it's best to potentially rock the boat. That is okay. And we want to validate your decision-making, you know, best how you feel in your gut. Yes. I love that. And I think that that also helps us keep in mind that like, there's no expiration date yeah. right, on this type mm-hmm. of conversation. If it's something that's really important to you and you find yourself that you're finally in a safe place to tackle it, and that might be yeah. days or weeks or longer later, then you should go for that when the time is right for you. And that sometimes there might not be a safe time. And I think yeah. that that's okay to say. So I think, Mac, it can help put all of this together. If we use a couple of examples from Breakline, because <laughs> we're not immune, you know, to like moments where we realize, oh, geez, I could really show up better. You know, I could really show up in a more productive way, a more supportive way for, for my colleague. And so I'm going to offer a couple of those. And, and the first one was 
one of our male teammates, he was pounding the table for an outstanding female applicant. And for those of you who don't know, at Breakline, we roundtable all of our admissions decisions. And we always have folks representing every community that we serve at that table. And we discuss the decisions together as a team. This is an influential person. He has a lot of authority. The entire team loves him. He was so excited. He listed off so many compelling attributes and he put this exclamation on it. And the exclamation was, this girl's amazing. In a meeting like that, you can, you can sort of imagine how the comment landed with the women at the table, especially. And so directly after that meeting, a mm. female colleague called him. We're a remote only company. We're not physically co-located. So she called him and she said, hey, you know, that word landed the wrong way. And I know you didn't intend it. We're talking about a woman, not a girl, you know? Mm. And so again, she gave grace. That word landed the wrong way. And I know you didn't intend it. And she also did the surgical strike. She didn't say every time you talk about women, you refer to them as girls. Mm -hmm. It was this particular moment. She is a woman, not a girl. Mm -hmm. And then this person was specific. She was outcomes oriented. She chose private candor, right? She decided not to address it right in front of everybody who was in the meeting, called him just after. And she took a sincere approach with low drama and high grace. And then equipped with that feedback, our colleague never made the same mistake. And by the way, Mac, he was the one who had to remind us that that had happened. Yeah. That happened probably three years ago. I had completely forgotten about it, partly because he's never did it again, you know, because we, he was able to, to upskill and just be reminded. We also have a second example here, another wonderful colleague on our team, another veteran, and what I've learned as a civilian, Mac, is that our veterans who had call signs in the military, often the call signs have a double entendre. They have a double meaning <laughs> and they're often freaking hilarious in the right context. <laughs> and so when this person shared his call sign with our team, we just died laughing. It was so funny and it was so perfect for him. And he thought it was hilarious too. And it caught on like wildfire. It became this like ongoing running joke. We were using it in so many different conversations and meetings. And after about a year of this, our team had grown significantly. There were folks who were not present for the origin story of this norm. And it just became obvious that it no longer served who we had grown into. I think our, our company at that point had basically doubled in size. And so, Mac, we gave it a word funeral oh, and my. we chose a public explanation with low drama and high grace. We were specific, prescriptive, and outcomes oriented. And we said, this word is being cremated forever. <laughs> and so it had been a source of fun and humor. We went with that same energy while we were sending the term off with some last laughs. But in that place, this was a person who's high status, low risk in our organization. He was both the, you know, the recipient and also a participant in the fun and the laughs that we shared over this term. And so it felt like the right approach there was a public explanation in keeping with the sense of humor that we had shared as a team, but also a upon reflection, realizing we've outgrown this, we're, we're on to, to bigger and better things. And so let's, let's give it a word, word funeral and move on. Yes. Mm -hmm. to, to be, oh man, the grace, because that, that grace really is what 
allow somebody to move through it, right? And and mm. it is. That also makes me think of, we actually just had one happen yeah. recently, right? And kind yeah. of as a result of the conversations that we've been having, because we drink our own Kool-Aid here, right? And so we've been having a lot of conversations internally around these topics. And I actually had a coworker reach out after one of our conversations and bring up the use of a particular company that has been very ingrained into the break line culture, right? Just something that everybody enjoys and is given out as like a gift, things of that nature. And actually she enlightened me that it was rooted in prejudice and racism and just not what we thought it was, right? But she was struggling with, do I say something? How do I say something? Um, People really enjoy this thing. I don't want to be the person to take the thing away that everybody's fired up about. But also, I'm hurt. I'm standing here alone and I'm hurt and I'm not sure what to do. And just in us having these conversations and us starting to talk about these things, she said that she felt like we had given her the framework using that treads assessment, giving her the framework of how to have that conversation to the point where she actually reached out to you and had a conversation and you immediately did what I knew you would do, which is wrap your arms around her and support her and let her know that she's seen and she's heard and she's valued and started to brainstorm. How do we make that? How do we make that better? Who can we replace them with? Right. And then open that up to everybody, gave her a chance to say like, Hey, Here's what I've been struggling with. Here's what I know about him. Here are the facts. She even had, you know, resources that could kind of back up what she was talking about. And the outpouring of response from the rest of the team with mm-hmm. just love for yeah. her, respect for her, loving the courage that she chose to educate everybody with. It gave all of us an opportunity to not continue to support something that we all don't align with, that doesn't align with Mm -hmm. our values and who we are. And she took the courage that it Mm -hmm. took to say that. So yeah, she really did. She really did. And to your point, Mac, she started with grace. Yeah. She didn't assume that we all knew what she knew. Mm -hmm. She started with grace and she shared her research with us. And I, given the reactions from the team, I think Maybe 10% of the team had actually seen it, but 90% of us had no idea. Mm-hmm. And she started there, you know, with allowing for the space, oh, you you may not know. And she was right. But then the other thing that I thought was really interesting about that, beyond affirming her entitlement to feel safe and valued and respected and connected to her team. The other thing was we just started throwing out substitutes and within five minutes, we had 10 other companies that we could support that were better aligned with our values. And so I think, you know, staying in an abundance mindset, there are ways to solve this problem. If we just, you know, put our heads together on it, I think was a hallmark of why that succeeded. But she was also, she gave us grace. She was surgical and she was outcomes oriented. She was like, it's this company that I would like to replace. That's right. That's what I want out of this conversation. And I was really proud of how the whole team responded. One key point that you're leaving out because you're so modest, Mac, is that she called you. She did. And she said, how do I do this? And, and, you know, you helped give her the confidence to come to the team. You gave her some coaching, some mentorship, some suggestions, and she went for it. And I happened to call her this morning and I said, you know, I really hope that the reaction of the team affirmed this experience for you. So you continue building this muscle 
and know that when you put your hand up for help, we are here for you. Yes. And I think that's huge. That's a huge call out that as the receiver, that's being told that this thing is happening, yeah. to receive it as the problem is the problem. Right. right. She didn't. Is this what home. Miranda says? This is, this, this, this is a Mirandaism. Okay. That's what I thought. Let's we, give we, credit we, where credit is. We live is by due. this in my household. <laughs> yes, we do. Along with saying that, say the whole thing and to know that the problem is the problem, right? That yeah. like ultimately the thing you're trying to solve doesn't have to become about me versus you. Right. And, and that was what she was scared about, right? Like deep down, she was scared yeah. that if I bring this up. It's going to be me versus everyone else here. Yeah. And I'm going to have to stand alone. And yeah. so if you can remember that when someone's coming to you in that moment, that mm. you don't have to do that. And the problem can be the problem. Uh, mm-hmm. And the other thing that it makes me think of, which was a, a reoccurring thread for all of us who talked mm-hmm. about these moments, which is that like sometimes we seek that affirmation externally. Right. Yeah. Like, did this thing really happen to me? And is it yes. bad? Do you agree with me that it doesn't feel good that I'm yes. my crazy for feeling like this? Right. Mm-hmm. So much of these moments is about realizing that it's valid what's happened to you. Yeah. And if you can articulate that in a clear, concise and meaningful way in an environment with high trust and low ego, then mm-hmm. we can all work together and you can be made to feel like people care. I think we wanted to share one final thought here, which is also around choosing your battles. Yeah. And at Breakline, we're always thinking, how do we problem solve for the world that we're living in today? We're all about being pragmatic, you know, for the circumstances that we face today. And some of those circumstances are budget constraints, you know, limited resources, deadlines, deliverables. We come together as a team when we're part of teams, part of companies, part of organizations, our primary responsibility is to achieve goals designed to build our businesses, build our organizations. That's what we're here to do. And then in the course of achieving those goals, we bug each other in ways that need to be addressed because if we don't address them, then it siphons off our energy. It siphons off our confidence. It can siphon off our competence too. But I think it's worth noting here that we have a finite number of times when we can sound the alarm, as you've said, Mac. And so we encourage everyone who's listening, be judicious, choose your moments wisely, go for it when it truly matters and when you can be obviously impactful. And then remember, part of showing grace is allowing those more minor irritants that again, we all face on a day-to-day basis, let those just flow to your rear view mirror. And one thing that I've learned in my career is be careful not to fall into the trap of diluting your power by calling out every minor screw up, you know, really stay in the realm of meaningful problem solving, stay away from nitpicking or obtuse stubbornness where persistence becomes an annoyance. And let me share, I'm going to share a personal example, Mac. I know you, I know you have a more professional example, but I just want to illustrate the point. Mac, my dad (laughs) is obsessive with dishwashing. He is so obsessive. He has a dishwasher, but he scrubs every dish, every fork (laughs) to a state of perfection that you would not believe. And so I'm standing next to him, you know, at family dinners or whatever, trying to help like do the dishes as families do. 
And this man, I will do the dish, Mac, where like 99% of people would say that dish is clean or it's clean enough. He will take it out of the dishwasher and redo it, you know, because it has, yes, he will, because it has one speck on it, you know, or he has like his famous thing is like, it has grit on it. It would be microscopic, his grit, Mac, (laughs) even if it's microscopic, this man is convinced there is grit. And so my reaction to that is, okay, you do it. You know, I'm out. I can't deal with this. Like you are criticizing every single minor thing that isn't perfect here. And so I'm going to disengage. And it's that reaction that we want to guard against, right? Like this, a disengagement is a failure. What we want is engagement. We want folks as a result of the conversation to be leaning in, not saying, I can't deal with you. I'm out. Yes, absolutely. And we actually start to lose out on opportunities too, right? Yes. I've had a lot of friends who, when you choose to be the person who's going to take up the mantle for every issue that you come across, be that for yourself or for other people, you begin to lose the opportunities that are at hand, right? People start to feel like you're a friction point or that Mm -hmm. you're constantly calling out trouble. We do know that that sort of thing makes you less likely to be chosen sometimes for the next opportunity, to be given the opportunity to show that you're more than just that. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, really you want to be associated with your performance. You Mm want to be associated with your expertise. You want to be associated with the value, the measurable value that you're driving at an organization not with being a pain, you know, not with being a troublemaker. And I actually did a misstep, you know, and was kind of considered a pain. And that was when I was at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And this is an example of losing opportunities and also losing influence. So Mm -hmm. I was at Stanford for nine years and I actually can't remember what the specific thing was, but I remember that I wanted to go after an opportunity and my colleagues disagreed with me. And I was like a dog with a bone. Like I would not (laughs) give up. I was knocking on every door. I was interjecting it into every conversation. I found a way to get it onto every agenda in the meeting. And I was persistent, which can be and is often a positive trait, but well past the point where it was helpful. And so I lost influence. Like there were times when I when I wasn't invited to meetings that I should have been in because I was so annoying. And so it was actually a really important professional development moment to me. Like I'm going to choose my battles from here on out. Yes, because to your point, right? Like not only did you lose out on the opportunity and the influence, but then you you get sidelined. Yes. Caricature, right? You that can be true. Yes. Debbie Downer. We all remember right. the old skits with Debbie Downer coming in and nobody yes. wants to around. That's not who you are, right? To your point, you've right. got value. You've got an insight or perspective and to lead with that and not lead with always trying to be the person to find the, the thread to pull. And so I guess we just kind of like to circle around and, and and really end this on a positive note of mm-hmm. nobody's intending to be the thought police, right? We don't want to be nitpicking or the word police. We really all just know that we have a responsibility within our relationships when it comes to somebody expressing hurt to us to have mm-hmm. to hear it, right? And to choose to do differently, Um, Mm -hmm. more people spend time carrying things that aren't work, the less they actually have to produce and and work. 
So I think that that's where we're coming from as break line is helping people put that burden down. And I think about this, I almost think about it as a contract, Mm. Mac. And when I think about the receiver of feedback, I think a primary responsibility of whoever is receiving the feedback, as you said, it's to be low ego, Mm. you know, and that's so important. And part of the reason why it's important is because you want to signal approachability, especially if you're a leader so that you can receive information that's important for you and important for your organization, even if it stings in the moment. Mm. So really as people leaders and as people and as teammates working on being low ego as possible, we want to really make sure that the hurdle that folks have to get over to say something to us, we want to make that hurdle as low as possible. And we can achieve that with low ego. And then on the flip side, if you're the giver of feedback, just to our related point of choosing your battles, if you're the giver of feedback, make sure that you have high tolerance for other people. You're not going to nitpick, as you said. You're not going to, every single tiny misstep is not going to be the moment that you feel like you have to jump in. We're going to have high tolerance for each other and we're going to choose to be judicious with the feedback that we give. But that combination, low ego, high tolerance, is a really winning combination and one that I would recommend for other organizations too. Mm, powerful. Well, I just love getting to chat with you about these topics. You're always one of my favorite people to talk to. I swear. Favorite. I could, I could do it forever. And I'm, I'm sure we'll be doing it again on another. Well, app. I think we'll be doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> Even if no one else listens, Matt. That's right. I'm It'll be me and you. I'm learning. <laughs> A stream of two. Hello. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, if you are still listening, we're really happy that you joined us here. This is a treat for us. We hope it's helpful to you and we'll look forward to doing it again soon. Thank you, Mac. Thank you, Bethany. We here at Team Breakline believe that any conversation can become a critical conversation. We hope each of you treads lightly and leads with love. Make sure it's the right time to take a risk. Choose wisely how to spend your energy understand your desires, and make sure that you feel safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Breakline Arena series, How Do I Tell You? Don't forget to share if this conversation helped you or could help someone else. With love, until next time, listeners.